0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries Podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, the Devil's Brigade, the World War II story of the 1st Special Service Force, the predecessor of the U.S. Special Service Forces. The following is the true story of an elite American-Canadian commando unit in World War II, which operated under the command of the Fifth Army. They were known and feared by the German forces in Italy, who nicknamed them the Black Devils, Due to the use of a blackening agent, they applied to their faces for stealth during combat. They were trained as a small, elite force which could go behind enemy lines, especially in mountainous areas during the worst of winter conditions. This required a certain breed of men, as well as specialized training in every category you can imagine, from explosives, to skiing, to mountain climbing, to -to hand-to-hand combat. Their wartime exploits are the stuff of legend. The first special service force known commonly as the FSSF, was awarded a Unit Gold Medal by Congress in 2013 in recognition of their incredible bravery and sacrifice. When the Special Forces tab was created in 1983 for wear by members of the U.S. Army Special Forces, it was also retroactively awarded to members of wartime combat units that had been identified as predecessors of the Special Forces. Thus, Any soldier who had spent 120 days in wartime service with the 1st Special Service Force is authorized to wear the Special Forces tab. The FSSF, or 1st Special Service Force, paved the way for today's Special Operations Unit, such as the U.S. Special Forces, the Green Berets, Delta Force, the Navy SEALs, and others. This is their story. I'm going to begin this story by telling you about the movie, which was named The Devil's Brigade, and which has been making the rounds of streaming channels such as Tubi, Amazon Prime, and Netflix. Like most war movies, some liberty was taken with the facts, according to the veterans of the TSSF. However, in our opinion, it was well-directed, well-written, and well-acted, and accurately portrays the difficulties of bringing together Canadian and American soldiers in a remote training area and getting them to forget their differences and blend as one extremely tough fighting unit in a short amount of time. And they did have differences in pay, in attire. Some Canadians wore kilts, for instance, until regular uniforms arrived. Differences in command structure and other categories. The movie also accurately portrays the extreme hardships required in fighting entrenched German troops in midwinter in the rugged, ice-covered mountains of Italy. You'll be kept on the edge of your seat throughout most of the action. Although our title mentions them as the Devil's Brigade, they were actually called the Black Devils, and the operations they were involved in were no cakewalks. The veterans who fought for this elite commando force never got the attention they deserved, so one can say that although the movie wasn't completely accurate, it does score in giving credit where credit is due. Movies, as we all know, are made in such a way as to be able to recoup large investments by entertaining paying customers and securing profits. This almost always requires top actors, great directors, and excellent writing and production. If it's not a documentary, it can and often does steer away from the facts. This movie had all that was needed to make it successful. The Devil's Brigade was made in 1968, and it's based upon the 1966 book of the same name, The Devil's Brigade, written by Robert H. Alderman and Colonel George Walton, a member of the brigade. It recounts the formation, training, and first mission of the 1st Special Service Force, which was initially intended to be a joint American-Canadian- and Norwegian commando unit destined to go behind German lines in Norway. But not enough Norwegians could be diverted from other missions, so that it became strictly American and Canadian. The film dramatizes the force's first major mission, which was to capture the German mountain stronghold of Monte La Defensa, as well as others, which we'll cover in detail, and we will also stay with the unit through Anzio and Rome here, and then on to their disbandment. As for the movie, William Holden delivered a solid performance as American Lieutenant Colonel Robert Frederick, the Brigade's commanding officer, with Cliff Robertson playing Major Alan Crown, the CEO of the Canadian half of the force, and Vince Edwards as Major Cliff Bricker, the commanding officer of the American side. The director was Andrew V. McLaughlin, and we've covered the story of his father Victor McLaughlin in an earlier story, so some of you might remember him. He came up in the film business as a character actor in the old John Wayne films, He was a British boxer-turned-Hollywood actor, and he appeared in seven John Ford films starring John Wayne. In the movie The Quiet Man, Victor McLaughlin played Kate's older brother. Kate was Wayne's love interest, and he and Wayne got into an epic fistfight. You would never know that McLaughlin was nearing 70 years old during that filming, and Wayne was 45. But they looked well-matched. McLaughlin had actually fought Jack Johnson in Vancouver and hung in for the full six-round exhibition fight. And anyone who could survive six rounds with Jack Johnson was a bona fide fighter. We talk about that in our episode called The Great White Hope. And no, young listeners, it's not a racist story. As a director, McLaughlin, followed by his son, was one of the best. David Wolper was the producer-filmmaker. It was undoubtedly his idea to portray the men of the force as troublemakers and misfits, but they were anything but that in real life. The Brigade's veterans chafed at this portrayal when the movie did come out in the late 60s. Wolper was a noted documentary filmmaker interested in getting into feature films, and this was his first. He purchased the film rights to Edelman and Walton's book in October of 1965. He had already bought the rights to the book The Remagen Bridge, which, as all of you experienced listeners know, tells the story of Operation Market Garden. Wolper said he was attracted to the material because he didn't want to be typed as a serious documentary filmmaker. He was quoted as saying, It's based on truth, but it's a movie movie, a fun and games type thing, he said. And that's what leads me to believe that some of the real story got lost in the making. But don't worry, you'll hear it here. United Artists agreed to finance it. Wolfer hired William Roberts to do a script. The producer later wrote in his memoirs that, This was my first feature, but I was not in the slightest bit intimidated. In October of 1966, William Holden agreed to star. The following month, Andrew McLaughlin agreed to direct. The U.S. Department of Defense and the Canadian Department of National Defense both agreed to assist the film production. Filming started April 15, 1967. The Devil's Brigade was filmed with the 19th Special Forces Group at Camp Williams, Utah, 20 miles south of Salt Lake City, with battle locations on Mount Jordan near Draper, Utah, and on location in St. Ilia Fiuma Fiumirapido, Italy. Parts of the film were also shot in Park City, Utah, Lehigh, Alpine, Solitude, and Granite Mountain. Wolper realized it would be as cheap to shoot in an Italian village as building an Italian set in America. However, the birthday scene, which is set in Italy, was filmed at the National Guard armory in Salt Lake City, with Brigham Young University students as extras. The U.S. National Guard Bureau provided 300 members of the Utah National Guard to portray soldiers in the mass battle scenes filmed. Wolper invented the red berets that appeared in the film as well as on the film's posters and on the tie-in and on the paperback cover of Edelman and Walton's book. The first special service force did not wear red berets. And for you serious football and boxing fans, the cast of the Devil's Brigade included NFL running back Paul Horning and world middleweight champion boxer Gene Fulmer in minor roles. You can look for them in the barroom brawl sequence, with Paul Horning as a belligerent lumberjack and Fulmer as the bartender. And while we're talking boxing, coming up in a few weeks here at 1001 Heroes, Cinderella Man, the true story of James J. Braddock, the come-from-nowhere boxer who beat world champion Max Bauer on June 13, 1935 at Madison Square Garden, winning the World Heavyweight title. He went in at 10-to-1 odds and came out a winner. The real story is even better than the movie, which was very good, thanks in large part to director Ron Howard and Russell Crowe. Wolper later wrote that Holden was very cooperative during the shoot in Utah, only drinking wine, but in Italy, his drinking got out of control. Wolper had to call on the assistance of a woman in Paris who had dealt with Holden before and helped him finish the film on schedule. Filming for The Devil's Brigade concluded on July 3, 1967, in London. The film was the fourth most popular movie in general release in Britain in 1968. Wolper later wrote, The Devil's Brigade turned out to be a terrific film. It was a wonderful story. The acting was excellent, and the preview audiences and critics loved it. Unfortunately, it came out just a few months after the release of The Dirty Dozen, which was the same kind of story. It was a big hit, and it killed us. We got lost in the wind. To the veterans of The Black Devils, the film was historically inaccurate. In a TV documentary called Suicide Missions, The Black Devils, force member Bill Story stated, the Devil's Brigade was and is a very entertaining war movie, but as a piece of accurate history, it's sheer nonsense. There was never an aspect of the Dirty Dozen, meaning these guys weren't plucked out of brigs and promised redemption. This was absolutely not true. So how were they recruited, you might ask? We'll get to the real story right after these sponsor messages. And now, the true story of the legendary Black Devils, the first Special Service Force. As with all members of our armed forces who gave all for their freedom here and abroad, we appreciate their sacrifice, and may they all rest in peace. Some say the name the Black Devils was given to them by the Germans, who called them Schweizdapel. Others say that Army Intel gave them the nickname. The important thing is, is that they've worn the name proudly ever since. The majority of them were not misfits, as was suggested in the Devil's Brigade movie. So where did they come from? Some were pulled out of existing paratroop divisions, like the 101st Airborne. Some responded to notices delivered to all Army bases in the Southwest and on the Pacific coast. Some heard about the group and asked for a transfer to it to see action. Others heard about it through notices placed in local papers in lumber and mining towns in Snow Country, in Canada and the U.S., And whose idea was it? Let's start with the idea man, whose name was Jeffrey Pike, although his initial idea never made it to fruition. He wanted to create a special attack force consisting of snow-capable vehicles which could move with blitzkrieg speed over winter terrain. This was to be called Operation Plough. Destination? Norway and Romania. Pike was British, and for three hectic months he was on loan to Washington, D.C. to champion his idea which kept finding ways to slip out of his grasp. A capable young lieutenant colonel named Robert Bob Frederick was assigned to do a feasibility study of Pike's idea, and found it lacking substance. Eisenhower, recently returned from a meeting with Mott Batten in London, agreed that Pike's plan was too risky, but admitted that he had already told his British counterparts that the U.S. would go ahead with creation of the elite commando force, but soon Pike was on a plane back to England while Colonel Frederick took over the command of the 1st Special Operations Force for the Army. What survived from Pyle's idea was the creation of an elite force of Canadians and Americans who would start training for commando attacks. But as it developed, the target was no longer Norway. It became the entrenched Germans who were preventing the Allies from moving through Italy, namely the high mountains of Italy, on their way toward joining the Allied attack on Germany's homeland. High speed snow vehicles called weasels were to carry the raiders across snow laden areas with speed. Credit Pike for that idea. 600 of them were ordered and built by Studebaker and used in different places during the war. With regard to recruiting, the new force required a special breed of man. The leadership would also require a smart and totally dedicated commander. Frederick was assigned commander of this new force. The notices went out in Canada and the U.S. looking for hunters, guides, Backwoodsmen, outdoorsmen, athletes, law enforcement, mountain climbers, soldiers looking for dangerous work, you get the drift. The 1st Special Service Force was activated on July 9, 1942, as a joint Canadian-U.S. force of three small regiments and a service battalion, directly answerable to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, U.S. Army. Fort William Henry Harrison in Helena, Montana, was chosen as the primary training location, due to its flat terrain for airborne training and its close proximity to mountains for ski and winter training. Colonel Frederick enjoyed a very high priority in obtaining equipment and training areas. Officially, it was named Project Plough. As for Canadian recruitment, in July of 1942, the Canadian Minister of National Defence, James Ralston, approved the assignment of 697 officers and enlisted men for Project Plough, under the guise that they were forming Canada's first airborne unit, the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion. While its members remained part of the Canadian Army, subject to its code of discipline and paid by the Canadian government, they were to be supplied with uniforms, equipment, food, shelter, and travel expenses by the U.S. Army. It was agreed that a Canadian would serve as second in command of the force, and that half of the officers and one-third of the enlisted men would be Canadian. After Lieutenant Colonel McQueen, the senior Canadian member, broke his leg during parachute training The highest-ranking Canadian in the force was Lieutenant Colonel Don Williamson, who commanded the 2nd Regiment. The U.S. volunteers for the force consisted initially of officers from Forts Belvoir and Benning, Belvoir located in Virginia and Benning in Georgia. Letters of recruitment were posted to all U.S. Army units in the southwest and on the Pacific coast. The letters called for single men aged 21 to 35. Occupations preferred, rangers, lumberjacks, north woodsmen, hunters, prospectors, explorers, and game wardens. Inspection teams also scoured the western camps for ideal candidates. Those chosen, owing to the secrecy of the mission, were often told that they had been selected to undergo training for a parachute unit. Indeed, the unit was so secretive that many soldiers did not know where they were when they arrived in Helena for training, as the windows of the trains carrying the troops were painted black. The combat force was to be made up of three regiments. Each regiment was led by a lieutenant colonel and 32 officers and boasted a force of 385 men. The regiments were divided into two battalions with three companies in each battalion and three platoons in each company. The platoon was then broken up into two sections. Since the unit needed to be trained quickly, the soldiers began parachuting within 48 hours of their arrival in Helena. The camp had no training towers and preliminary flights were not carried out, so for many this was their first experience at jumping. This training was completed before any other because it was believed that if all the soldiers earned their jumping badges simultaneously, a sense of camaraderie would develop within the camp. Colonel Frederick announced that only two jumps would be required, shortening the total from the U.S. Army Air Force's requirement of six. The men were to jump from six C-47 Douglas Skytrain planes known to the British as Dakotas. At Fort Benning, Georgia, they underwent a five-week jump course which taught them the design, packing, and function of parachutes, as well as jumping and landing techniques paired with strenuous physical conditioning. It also used two 250-foot towers which had been brought from the 1939 World's Fair. As an added note, my father had shared stories with me about that World's Fair. He was a young manager with GE, assigned to show off General Electric's new television sets. Yes, this was 1939. It would still be years before they started appearing in any large number of households, but in 1939 the TV was here and on its way. Those towers were used to simulate exiting from an aircraft and landing, learning how to land and tumble. Then came the jump training. Tough as many of these men were, mistakes were plentiful. They were ordered to step out, not to jump, and some who jumped would end up breaking their noses with their knees. Others froze in the doorways. Others didn't tumble with the direction of the chute upon reaching the ground and ended up with sprained ankles and knees, dislocations, and sometimes broken legs. Many of those who lost their nerve were bumped out of the force. The men were on a strict and physically demanding three-phase training schedule. One, from August to October, parachuting, weapons and demolitions, small unit tactics and physical training. Two, from October to November, unit tactics and problem-solving and three, from November to July, skiing, rock climbing, and adaptation to cold climates, as well as operation of the M-29 Weasel. The weekly training schedule comprised of reveille at 4.30 a.m. from Monday to Saturday, followed by breakfast at 06.30. The obstacle course was run at 0800 four times a week, followed by the day's training, which differed depending on the month. Soldiers were expected to march double time between training exercises in order to adhere to the strict schedule. Training lectures were given by veterans of overseas wars in the evenings from Monday through Friday. Soldiers were given Saturday evenings and Sundays off. Most of the men went to Helena to relax on their days off. Marches were done on a 60-mile, 97-kilometer course, the record for which was held by Colonel Marshall's 1st Regiment, who completed it in 20 hours. The force trained with enemy weapons as well as U.S. weapons, taking them apart, reassembling and shooting them until they were as proficient with German weapons as they were with their own. The men ran everywhere, and nearly all the time, when they weren't forced march with full combat loads. Then there was the obstacle course, which the Canadians nicknamed as the granddaddy of all obstacle courses. It required hand-over-hand climbing and eight-foot walls. The need for urgency and precision was drilled into them. To the southeast of their camp stood Mount Helena, and the steep-sided cliff that faced the camp earned the nickname Muscle Mountain. It was a grueling one-and-a-half-hour task to run up this cliff where it could be scaled. The hand-to-hand combat instructor was Dermot Pat O'Neill, an ex-Shanghai International Police Officer, who was an expert in unarmed combat. O'Neill, who was well-versed in several forms of martial arts, taught the men to attack the eyes, throat, groin, and knees. He also taught knife-fighting tactics and showed the men how to quick-draw their pistols. The men attacked one another with unsheathed bayonets as part of the training exercises, and yes, injuries were common. Ski training, taught by Norwegian instructors, began in December. The men received lectures and demonstrations on skiing techniques, and most had mastered the basics in two weeks. At this point, the men were made to ski cross-country in formation from dawn until dusk with all of their equipment, until they were up to Norwegian Army's standards. As a light infantry unit destined for alpine or winter combat, they were issued various items of non-standard clothing, equipment, and rations, including skis, parkas, haversacks, And the mountain ration. From the outset the first special service force was armed with a variety of non-standard or limited-issue weapons such as the M1941 Johnson machine gun. The Johnson light machine gun in particular helped greatly increase the firepower of the unit and was highly regarded by those who used it in combat. Frederick's staff even considered arming the men with blow darts but it was decided against on the grounds that it may have been considered a war crime. Frederick himself participated in the design of a fighting knife made exclusively for the force called the V-42 Combat Knife, a derivative of the Fairburn Sykes Fighting Knife. By August of 1942, they began weapons training, which included stripping and firing of all known types of American and German weapons, as mentioned. The rifle of choice was the dependable 30 caliber M1 Garand, which could fire eight bullets as fast as you could pull the trigger. When the eight-round clip was emptied, it dropped out, signaling the operator to replace it with another. It was critical that they all learned that rifle's one weakness. In extreme cold, the sliding action would stick if you weren't keeping it properly lubricated. And cold was where they were headed. They also trained with the 45 Thompson machine gun, known as the Gangster's Tommy Gun, which could fire 700 rounds a minute and fired in a semi or fully automatic mode. Then there was the BAR, the Badass Rifle, its proper name, the Browning Automatic Rifle, the only problem being that its 20-round round box needed constant changing. The BAR was the favorite of Clyde Barrow, Bonnie and Clyde fame, if memory serves me right. Colonel Frederick gave them all the ammo and all the practice time they wanted on weekends. He was constantly on the hunt for new weapons, and had first priority to anything he needed for the first special service force. On weekends, Helena, Montana became Sin City, offering bars and houses of ill repute along its main street named Last Chance Gulch, where the first gold had been found in 1864. One favorite watering hole was named the Gold Bar, where members of the force would mix it up with local cowboys, miners, lumberjacks, and each other. If they were really looking for trouble, the forcemen would go the extra 60 miles south to Butte, where there were no MPs to round them up. Normally the force would win their fights, but according to legend, the copper miners of Butte couldn't be beaten. They had no backup in them, one of the men said, and the forcemen finally got tired of fighting them and left for good. By the summer of 1943, the FSSF was fully trained and ready to roll out. On Tuesday, April 6, 1943, all 2,300 men of the force paraded through downtown Helena. Marching in column in their smart dress uniforms, parachute boots, and steel helmets, and led by the force's band, they made quite an impression on the thousands of Cheering residents who had more or less adopted them as their own. It was decided that the FSSF would be first utilized against Japanese forces occupying islands off Alaska. They arrived at the San Francisco port of embarkation on 4th of July, 1943. By the 10th of July, the Devil's Brigade sailed for the Aleutian Islands off Alaska. By August 15th, 1st SSF was part of the invasion force of the island of Kiska, but after discovering the island was recently evacuated by Japanese forces it reembarked and left ship at Camp Stoneman California returning to Fort Ethan Allen in Vermont arriving September 9 1943 from there as soon as needed they would ship out from Boston in late 43 the original project plow with its target as Norway was abandoned but in October of 1943 the commander of the United States 5th Army lieutenant general mark clark brought the 1st Special Service Force to Italy, where its members demonstrated the value of their unique skills and training. The Devil's Brigade arrived in Casablanca in French Morocco in November of 43, and quickly moved to the Italian front, arriving at Naples on November 19, 1943, and immediately going into the line with the U.S. 36th Infantry Division. On November 22, Colonel Frederick was driven five miles by jeep to General Mark Clark's command post in Caserta, Italy. Clark made it clear to Frederick that he was especially pleased at the arrival of the force, which he knew was a unit trained to do anything from making a ski assault to dropping by parachute on the enemy's rear. His plan was to use the force to enable the Fifth Army to move the Germans off the Camino Hill Mass and puncture Hitler's Winter Line, which was a series of well-fortified mountain strongholds created for the purpose of making it impossible for Allied forces to pass through the rugged mountainous territory. The German winter line ran from the Gulf of Gaeta just north of the Garigliano River to the great granite blocks of Monte Camino and Monte Simocro that stand like watchtowers blocking the approaches to Cassino and on yet through more mountainous terrain toward the Sangro River. In easy-to-understand words, the German winter line ran west to east across the middle of Italy, about a hundred miles south of Rome, and there was only one highway up which the Allies could move supplies, and that was Route 6. Whoever held Route 6 held Italy, and the Germans were well dug in with concrete-fortified mountain batteries that were considered impregnable, batteries that looked down over the valleys where any attacker would have to cross to attack them. The force was tasked with taking two heavily fortified German positions in the Italian mountains, one at Monte La Defensa and the other at Monte La Remitania. These positions were controlled by the 104th Panzer Grenadier Regiment with the 1st Fallschirm Panzer Division, Hermann-Goring, in reserve. The importance of these mountains lay in their position relative to Hitler's Gustav line. The German winter line, positioned on La Defensa and Remittania, were the last entrenched line before the Gustav, and that Allied push through the mountains would enable them to advance closer to Rome, which the Germans held. Strategically, the mountains provided a commanding view of the countryside and highway, giving German artillery on the mountain control of the surrounding area. The German artillery atop La Defensa were also using a new weapon, the Nebelwerfer, which could deliver poison gas, smoke, and deadly rockets down upon any attackers with great accuracy and speed. The Nazis were big on nasty weapons, and this was one of the best of their arsenal. The paths leading up La Defensa were heavily scouted by the force prior to their attack, and it was reported to Lieutenant Colonel T.C. McWilliam, who would lead the 2nd Regiment's assault on Rebatania that the best way to approach the entrenched enemy was up an almost vertical escarpment over to the right of the hill mass, meaning almost straight up an icy cliff. In doing this, the force hoped to catch the Germans off guard, as previous Allied attacks on the mountain had met the enemy head-on. The previous attacks had decimated sections of the American 6th Corps and the British 10th Corps, both of which ran into mines, booby traps, mortars, and heavy resistance from fortified positions. The forces' assault was planned for 2nd December, while the men kept training in mountain climbing and fighting tactics at their temporary barracks at Santa Maria. The plan was as follows. At 1630 hours, on December 1, 2nd Regiment would be trucked within 6 miles of the base of the mountain and march the rest of the way to La Defensa, which was a 6-hour march. 1st Regiment, coupled with the U.S. 36th Infantry Division, would be the reserve units for the 2nd Regiment. 3rd Regiment would be split in two half to supply the 2nd Regiment following the initial assault and the other half to be reserved with the 1st Regiment and 36th Infantry Division. All identification on four soldiers was to be removed except their dog tags. On the evening of December 2nd, the 281 men of the 1st and 2nd Battalions moved off in single file with Scouts Van Osdell and Fenton in the lead. Their target, the base of the sheer Cliff at the rear of Mount Defensa. They were followed by Officers Rotland, Piette, and the rest of the 3rd Platoon. They were the spearhead of what many would consider to be a suicide mission. For 16 months, these men had been put to the test through tough training. They were carrying the best of weapons, Tommy guns, M1 Garands, grenade launchers, B.A.R.s, Johnson light machine guns, mortars, and V-42 knives for fast killing of sentries. On the way, they passed the bloated bodies of infantrymen who had died just days before and had not been recovered. At 8 p.m., the Allied shelling of Mount Defensa, as well as other German mountain fortresses, began. The attack on Defensa was supported by more than 340 Allied guns, including the tank destroyers of the U.S. 1st Armored Division and two battalions of 8-inch howitzers known as Bunker Busters. After reaching the base of the mountain and having a single night's rest, the Force's 2nd Regiment, which totaled 600 men, began their ascent of La Defensa. At dusk, under cover of a heavy artillery barrage. One soldier recalls the severity of the shelling. It looked as if we were marching into hell. The whole mountain was being shelled and the whole mountain seemed to be on fire. The soldiers of the 2nd Regiment of the force came within range of the German positions at midnight and began to climb the final cliff which jutted steeply upwards for a thousand feet. That cliff actually measures 328 yards high. The men climbed with ropes tied to one another in the freezing rain. The forcemen continued their climb until they approached the base of the cliff, at which point Van Osdale spotted a German sentry. Van Osdale signaled the troops to be quiet and began climbing up to where the sentry and bunker were located. He was able to get behind the sentry and cut his throat. The men then got ropes secured to the cliff and over the course of the next four hours, the troops scaled the cliffs. Once situated, Piet ordered his men to fix bayonets. Rotlin's company then began moving toward the German position along a rock-strewn path in the dark, moving slowly and listening for movement. By about 4 a.m. they could soon see the German positions located in a saucer-shaped area when one of the German guards issued a challenge. Van Osdale shot the guard and the night came alive with gunfire as the Germans swiveled the MG-42 machine guns toward the oncomers and German soldiers started firing into the dark. The fighting wore on with the force slowly gaining ground and the Germans, some of whom were surrendering, others still firing their machine pistols, knowing they were headed for a last stand. It was a two-hour-long gun battle. By 7 a.m., Mount Defensa was in the hands of the Allies. Within days, the German defenses in that stretch of mountains had been broken, but not without the cost of many American and Canadian lives. As for the taking of Mount Defensa, war correspondent Clark Lee wrote, This feat captured the imagination of the entire 5th Army, and overnight, Colonel Frederick and his soldiers became almost legendary figures in the battle area, a place where heroism was already commonplace. The defensa attack, added Lee, would be remembered because of the endurance, daring, and fighting skill it involved. Previously, American and British forces had suffered many casualties in futile attempts to take the important Camino Ridge. The 1st SSF was successful in taking their initial objective of La Defensa, but were delayed in obtaining their actual objective of Monte La Ramitania, which was also called Hill 907. The attack on 907 was halted after the death of the 1st Battalion commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel T.C. McWilliam. While he desired that the force momentum continue, Frederick ordered a halt on the advance on 907 in order to wait for reinforcements and supplies. The force dug in at Defensa, anticipating the German counterattack. However, massive allied artillery barrages and the flooding of both the Rapido and Grigliano rivers prevented the Germans from reforming. While waiting for orders to attack Hill 907, the 2nd Regiment were resupplied by the 1st and 3rd Regiments, who brought them whiskey, ammunition, food, and even condoms to keep the barrels of their guns dry in the rain. This supply effort was a huge task as the men were asked to carry a lot of equipment up the cliff, suspended by ropes, in snow, rain, and ice. They needed both hands to climb, and they could only carry so much. Therefore they had to make numerous trips up. And coming down, they carried wounded. Once the British forces broke through the German lines at Monte Camino, the force was ordered to attack their primary objective, which was Hill 907. The successful assault on Defensa was the basis for the movie The Devil's Brigade. A star football player from Arkansas named Maurice Footsi Britt was a platoon leader during the attack on one of those mountains in this case, Mount Rotondo. During that fight, Lieutenant Britt's canteen and field glasses were shattered, a bullet pierced his side, and his chest, face, and hands were covered with grenade wounds, for which he refused to accept medical treatment until he was ordered to do so after the battle. He had personally accounted for five dead Germans and wounded many more, and but for his bold, aggressive actions, utterly disregarded superior enemy numbers, the German counterattack would have succeeded. For the example he set that day, Brit was later awarded the Medal of Honor. In over 10 days of fighting, Hitler's 15th Panzer Grenadier Division had lost 334 killed, 547 wounded, 194 missing, and 501 sick. The German losses in officers had been particularly heavy. They never expected to be beaten like that with nearly impregnable defenses. The first SSF immediately continued its attack, assaulting Hill 917 from December 6th through December 9th. It captured Hill 720, starting from Monte Samucro on December 25th, and after many difficulties, assaulted Monte Maho and Monte Viciataro almost simultaneously on January 8, 1944. During the mountain campaign, the first SSF suffered 77% casualties. 511 total, 91 dead, 9 missing, 313 wounded, with 116 cases of exhaustion. Some of the best descriptions of this fighting came from 43-year-old Ernie Pyle, the famous American war correspondent whose column about life at the front for ordinary G.I.s captured the attention and respect of millions back home. We've done a couple of his stories over at 1001 Classic Short Stories. The war in Italy was tough, wrote Pyle, because the land and weather are both against us. Incessant rains turn roads into quagmires. He described the country as shockingly beautiful, but shockingly hard to capture. Hills rose to high ridges of almost solid rock. The only option for the men, Pyle wrote, was to go up and over, not around. What Pyle couldn't write about, and the military never report, is accidental deaths due to friendly fire or just plain officer stupidity. Prior to that attack on Mount Defensa, a clay model of the mountain was constructed and the men were given time to practice with weapons. About an hour into the exercise, a bazooka misfired, and the officer in charge, Sergeant George G. Wright, of 1-1 Company, ordered the gun team to lay down the weapon and walk away. This prompted the company commander to intervene. He walked over and asked the sergeant what the problem was with the bazooka. Sergeant Wright replied, It misfired, sir. I plan to carry it into the range and blow it up, as there's something wrong with either the gun or the rocket, and as I understand it, they're not to be played with when they misfire. The officer, named Bill Beckett, was having none of it. Take your crew back out there and fire it, he ordered. The sergeant answered, Sir, I'm not in the habit of disobeying orders, but I am here, and I'm not going to put my life or my gun crew's life at risk for sake of a bazooka. Beckett answered, I'll deal with you later, sergeant. Then he ordered two men from a nearby group, Sergeant John Gibbon from Nova Scotia and North Carolinian Malcolm McPhee, to refire the bazooka after he had checked it over. Acting as gunner, Gibbon put the gun on his shoulder and aimed while McPhee plugged two wires into the battery and signaled that it was ready to fire. Gibbon pulled the trigger, the blazooka exploded, and Gibbon's head was severed from his body. McPhee was injured in the head and chest, but still barely alive. Beckett, also slightly hit, held McPhee in his arms and tried to reassure him that he had won a ticket home. Then McPhee died in Beckett's arms. Colonel Frederick tried to console Beckett in a conversation later that evening. I think I know how you feel, Bill, he said, but you can't take the blame for a faulty weapon. That's how the military works. You can have the greatest fighting force in the world, but some officers will be prideful and sometimes they will be dead wrong. Just as Custer. It's human nature. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. The Special Force Brigade was withdrawn from the mountains in January, and on February 1, was landed at the beachhead, created by Operation Shingle at Anzio, south of Rome, replacing the 1st and 3rd Ranger Battalions, which had suffered heavy losses at the Battle of Cisterna. Their task was to hold and raid from the right-hand flank of the beachhead marked by the Mussolini Canal. 1st Regiment was positioned on the force's right front, which comprised one-third of the entire line, while the 3rd Regiment guarded the remaining two-thirds of the line. 2nd Regiment, which had been reduced to three companies following the attacks on La Defensa, Samuccio and Majo, were tasked with running night patrols into Axis territory. Shortly after the SSF took over the Mussolini Canal sector, German units pulled back about a half a mile to avoid their aggressive patrols. The force's constant night raids forced Kesselring to fortify the German positions in their area with more men than he had originally planned. Reconnaissance missions performed by the Devils often went as deep as 1,500 feet behind enemy lines. Colonel Frederick was greatly admired by the soldiers of the 1st Special Service Force for his willingness to fight alongside his men in battle. On the beach in Anzio, for example, a nighttime force patrol walked into a German minefield and was pinned down by machine gun fire. Colonel Frederick ran into the battle and assisted the litter bearers in clearing the wounded force members. German prisoners were often surprised at how few men the force actually contained. A captured German lieutenant admitted to being under the assumption that the force was a division. Indeed, General Frederick ordered several trucks to move around the force's area in order to give the enemy the impression that the force comprised more men than it actually did. An order was found that another prisoner, that stated that the Germans in Anzio would be, quote, fighting an elite Canadian-American force. They are treacherous, unmerciful, and clever. You cannot afford to relax. The first soldier or group of soldiers capturing one of these men will be given a 10-day furlough." It was at Anzio that the 1st Special Service Force inspired the Black Devils' nickname. They were referred to as Black Devils because the brigade's members smeared their faces with black boot polish for their covert operations in the dark of the night. During Anzio, the 1st SSF fought for 99 days without relief was also at Anzio that the first SSF used their trademarked stickers. During night patrols, the soldiers would carry stickers depicting the unit patch and a slogan written in German, Dostig an der Komiknock, said to translate colloquially to, The worst is yet to come. Its literal translation is actually, The thick end is coming soon, implying that a larger force was on its way imminently. They placed these stickers on German corpses and fortifications. Canadian and American members of the Special Force who lost their lives are buried near the beach in the Commonwealth Anzio War Cemetery and the American Cemetery in Netuno, just east of Anzio. When the U.S. 5th Army's breakout offensive began on May 25, 1944, the 1st SSF was sent against Monte Aristino and attacked Roca Massima on 27th of May. The 1st SSF was given the assignment of capturing seven bridges in the city to prevent their demolition by the withdrawing Wehrmacht. During the night of 4th of June, members of the 1st SSF entered Rome, the first Allied unit to do so. And ever since then, there's been a lot of argument as to that fact. After they secured the bridges, they quickly moved north in pursuit of the retreating Germans. On the night of June 4th, the Black Devil seized the important bridges over the Tiber in Rome, and six weeks later, they made successful amphibious landings on the enemy-held French islands of Port Croix and Le Levant as the U.S. 7th Army invaded southern France. They were finally relieved by the Japanese-American 100th Battalion, whose story we told in the recent episode called Go for Broke here at 1001 Heroes. During the war, the 1,800-man Black Devils Brigade accounted for some 12,000 German casualties, captured some 7,000 German prisoners, and sustained an attrition rate of over 600%. The first special service force was disbanded December 5, 1944, in a field near villanueva Lubay on the extreme southeast Mediterranean coast of France. Villanueva-Lube holds a special place in the history of the force, not only because the unit was broken up there, but also because it's one of the villages that the first SSF had the hardest time capturing in southern France, doing so August 26, 1944. The day the unit was disbanded, the American commander held a parade honoring the unit. To end the ceremony, the Canadian elements were dismissed by being honored by the American troops with a pass and review eyes right, officers salute. After the units breakup, the Canadians were sent to other Canadian units, most of them becoming replacements for the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion. Some American members were sent to airborne divisions as replacements, others to ranger battalions, and still others formed the 474th Infantry Regiment, which served with the 3rd United States Army and performed occupation duty in Norway. United States Army Special Forces groups, who are the lineal descendants of the 1st Special Service Force, celebrate that breakup day every December 5th with their Canadian military comrades and surviving members of the force. Usually there's a combined parachute jump, a pass in review, and a formal ball. The force was awarded the French Croix de Guerre with silver gilt star, as well as the distinguished unit citation for extraordinary heroism. A large number of the Devil's Brigade members were honored for their acts of valor, including Tommy Prince, Canada's most decorated First Nations soldier of World War I. Also, U.S. member Wendell C. Johnson, 5th Company, 3rd Regiment, risking his life to save a fellow black devil, walked into a minefield and brought his wounded brigade comrade to safety. When they tried to give him a medal for his act of heroism, Wendell declined, saying, "'Give it to the man who lost his leg.' Although they were the first of the Special Forces, it paved the way for all the others. The 1st Special Service Force is claimed as a direct ancestor by two modern Special Operations Units, the Canadian Special Operations Regiment of the Canadian Special Operations Forces Command and the Elite Unit of the 1st Special Forces Command, Airborne, of the United States Army, Special Operations Command. In 2006, the Canadian members of the 1st Special Service Force received the United States Army's Combat Infantrymen Badge for participation in frontline combat. On February 3, 2015, as mentioned here at the beginning, the FSSF was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest award Congress can give to civilians. In 1996, Interstate 15 in Montana, between Helena and Sweetgrass, was renamed the 1st Special Service Force Memorial Highway. This highway was chosen because it was the route taken in 1942 by the Canadian volunteers to join their American counterparts for training at Fort Harrison. The entire length of Alberta Highway 4 received the same name in 1999. The forces also memorialized in several commemorative plaques mounted in city halls and along the route they fought in Italy and southern France, including one outside the Protestant Cemetery Rome, next to the Pyramid of Cestius, and another on the Embassy of the United States in Rome. Facing Via Vittorio Veneto. If you're looking for facts outside of Hollywood, three documentaries have been made about the force. The Black Devils in 2000 was an episode of History Channel's Dangerous Mission series, written, produced, and directed by Daryl Rare. Then there was Daring to Die, the story of the Black Devils, written and directed by Greg Hancock and Wayne Abbott and then The Devil's Brigade, a 2006 TV miniseries produced by Frantic Films. A little legacy for you, Quentin Tarantino's 2009 film *Inglorious Bastards features a character named Lieutenant Aldo Rain, a.k.a. Aldo the Apache, played by Brad Pitt, who wears the Force unit Crossed Arrows Collar Insignia and distinctive red arrowhead shoulder patch. Tarantino cited the first SSF as an influence. The Marvel Comics character Wolverine claimed several times that he was a member of the Devil's Brigade during the war. Being Canadian-born during the last years of Queen Victoria's reign, that fits. He also claimed he took part in the Anzio and Casino Battles. Sholto Watt, a Montreal star reporter who got to know the force well, always regretted that this North American corps d'elite could not have been employed in the lightning-fast staggering blow for which it had been trained. Many of the force had expressed that as well. Even so, he wrote, the impact it did make in just one year of combat was nothing short of extraordinary. I can testify, wrote Watt, to their spectacular power and efficiency, their marvelous morale, and their never-failing spirit of attack. They were exactly what one would expect from North America's best, an inspiration to see, and a terror to the enemy. One veteran of the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division said the forcemen were the best damn fighters in the world. Watt felt the same, but for him the force's real importance was much greater than even its outstanding military contribution. It was the fact that it was the first joint force of its kind, drawn from two neighboring democracies, and that it was a brilliant success throughout. It is this example of international brotherhood, wrote Watt, which deserves enduring honor. Every year, Helena Montana hosts a one-day event in July to remember and honor the first special service force and its heroes. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We hope you enjoyed this story of the legendary First Special Service Force. We do appreciate reviews, and here are a few recent ones for you. The first one, the best, five stars. John does his homework and presents his material as a master storyteller. The episodes are educational, interesting, and the sound effects help to place you in the story. I'm very happy that John has multiple different podcasts, Heroes, Sherlock Holmes, Stories for the Road, etc., as I am rapidly moving through all his work. Lastly, John reminds me of my Swedish grandfather, who was a brilliant, soothing, and charming storyteller. Thank you, John. Fire Captain Bill Ann. Six Blessed Apple Podcasts, US. Thank you, Bill Nye. Much appreciated. And this one, entertaining, educational, and amazing human drama. Can't get enough of this host and this show. Thank you for the ongoing treasure trove of human history. Please do a narration of the May 1972 Sunshine Mine Disaster, where 91 miners died and two were rescued after surviving two weeks, 1,600 meters underground in Idaho. The book, The Deep Dark, details the heroine human drama. Thank you, Art Almquist de Berry, Florida. And Art, if you can hear this sound, I'm tapping the cover of the book, The Deep Dark, and we'll be taking a deep look at it. Thank you for your kind review and for referring that book to us. That one from Domino Table Art, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you so much for taking the time to leave us reviews. We appreciate it greatly, and it helps new listeners decide to give us a try. We also appreciate our Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, please do catch up on our other shows two of which I'll mention today, the first 1001 Radio Days, where right now we've just started some Box 13 episodes. Detective Mysteries I think you'll enjoy very much. Give them a try at 1001 Radio Days and at 1001 Stories from Roy's Diner, where you'll find lots of suspense and mystery every week. All our shows come out Sunday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern, and some come out Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, everyone, stay safe. And we'll be back soon.